this week in the markets. Gold and U.S. shares blasted higher with the Dow Jones Industrial soaring to the highest weekly close in its 124-year history. Welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio, everyone. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to be with you on this July 12th, Season 14, Episode 704 show. From his home office in Thailand, Dr. Mark Faber, the globally renowned economist, editor of Gloom Boom Doom Report, returns with his latest update. He says the economy is on the cusp of a recession. Hey, but don't tell that to investors in U.S. shares. A global domestic economic storm of epic proportions where paper assets are devastated. Reserve currency loses up to 50, even 80 percent or more anything denominated in dollars he's worried about. He likes gold, silver, precious metal shares and even cryptocurrencies, a small allocation. And we agree with him here. Then John Scursi, founder of Corona Capital Management, returns to the show with his insights on the domestic and global economies. He's rebuilding their home on the British Isles following Hurricane Irma, the strongest storm ever recorded with wind speeds in excess of 220 miles an hour. And you might remember my regular listeners, Harry S. Den Jr., he battled out the storm in his Puerto Rico office holding the window frames together for hours during the storm. Just a harrowing tale. Well, the integrity of the entire global financial system is at risk. He's looking for a big debasing of the U.S. currency, echoing Dr. Faber's thoughts. And he's also a big fan of the precious metals as a financial survival strategy in an increasingly complex and volatile financial world. And don't forget our Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900. You'll need our extension in box number 514049. You can address the question to any of my guests. We'd like to field your questions and comments, 641-715-3900. And Robert Ian wraps up the show with his must-hear report. And the latest on my Ancient Artifacts Preservation Society project, we were again floored this week several times, folks. Found a carving. I have to protect the location. It actually had writing Icarus above this, and it was just most remarkable. We think it's at least 12,000 years old, near the end of the Pleistocene epoch, the first image uh, shows just an underwater world with two remarkable submarines. We're stunned when they revealed what appears to be Tesla coil technology in two carvings. One I hope to reveal over the weekend because it's much more challenging to filter and clean up. But there seems to be Tesla coil technology that deploys rudimentary level anti-gravity. And, of course, this is really just a static effect. For the life of me, can't understand why people haven't picked up on the Byfield-Brown effect. I mean, all you have to do is just balance a static field. It wouldn't require roads. You'd have, think of the uh, Luke Skywalker's speeder. I mean, this is a billion-dollar, maybe larger industry that's just begging for someone to start. If you're an engineer, you have an engineering background, and you'd like to work with me on this, I have a couple of patents already. My hands are kind of full. I'm back in graduate school right now, and, you know, we have two little ones. But if you're interested, why would I love to just work with you on this project? So if you have electrical engineering background and or any real world or even just educational background in engineering and a deep passion 
for anything anti-gravity, reach out to me, gsradio at frontier.com. We also made what we think were some rather unique finds on the, we're referring to as Lady Sphinx. Of course, the Sphinx of Egypt, solid evidence the Sphinx was a lady. We believe that the lady's profiles that had never been presented before of the lady and she had access to the similar technology in several of the, video, of the videos we've presented today. Um, it appears to have been a Kardashev level one society at least 10 to 12,000 years ago, probably considerably further. So there's really there's evidence all over the uh, Giza plateau of this lady. And we we're pretty certain she married or at least gave birth to a pharaoh's child. This individual appears to have overcome incredible hurdles and just climbed to the top of that culture in a way that. I think would really resemble a pop star today. So you might think of your favorite female or male singers or sports, an unbelievable story. And we found so many other things. We found astounding technologies in North America this week, which I just haven't had time to make the videos. And then in Central and South America, folks, there was a civilization of unbelievable technology. Goldseek.com radio begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility virtually unlimited over the precious metal sector for the eighth week running as investors poured funds into the sector on even more inflationary news from the Fed that we will almost certainly about 80% odds now of a rate cut in two weeks. At Friday's closing bell, the yellow metal remained at lofty levels. It's really almost spent a month here at the same point, up $12 for the week, 1% around fourteen twelve. Silver, though, picked up. One and a half percent. It shot up to fifteen twenty four twenty three cents on the week. The XAU precious metal shares, though, up two and a half percent. And of course, our alpha stocks pick. If you haven't joined my newsletter, please do. Soaring, black gold up two and a half dollars five percent at sixty. And palladium, at such a remarkable run in recent months, just off two percent at fifteen hundred and forty two. Still over a hundred dollars over gold price, if you can believe it. Platinum added twenty three though at eight thirty five an ounce. Well, gold is still up around 10% for the year, the highest point in six years on remarks this week from the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell that a rate cut is almost imminent by the end of the month. In his testimony to Congress on Thursday, he stated clues about the prospects of interest rate cuts and the market interpreted that as full speed ahead. That means more liquidity, uh, more inflation, Happy times ahead for corporations, which means people will be hiring more, buying more, spending more, and it all just flows everywhere. Whether or not this is smart long-term, nobody seems to care. It means happy days could be soon here again. Meanwhile, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Fed Funds futures currently show about 78% probabilities of a rate cut in the next two weeks. At the next FOMC meeting on the benchmark overnight lending rate slated for July 31st. In related domestic economic news, among the economic data this week, we saw the U.S. government reported consumer price index inched up just one-tenth of a percent in June last month. But consumer inflation was mostly held due to lower energy prices. Plus, we saw stronger than expected monthly jobs reports. So it's just a might say a nearly perfect environment for a rate cut. Bottom line, precious metals. Well, according to the World Gold Council, 
in June just last month, assets under management among gold exchange traded funds, ETFs, registered their biggest percentage climb since 2012. Investors are starting to wake up to the incredible relative bargain. From a technical position, I expect the momentum to remain sort of neutral here. We've had quite a climb, but I should point out the gold to silver ratio touched 95 recently. I mean, this is hovering around 92. It's just unprecedented, folks. I mean, this means one ounce of gold can buy you 92 or 93 ounces of silver. What an opportunity to exchange just a few ounces of gold for a treasure chest of thousands of silver dimes. An incredible life preserver, you might say, for difficult times. Moving on to the Wall Street Report, visibility virtually unlimited from horizon to horizon again over the New York Stock Exchange as investors sent all three key indices to the highest weekly close in national history. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow was up 410 points, 1.5%, slicing through resistance, closing at 27,322. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 ended at 3,013, up 24,2%, while the NASDAQ ended up 82,1% at 82,44, over 3,000 above its year 2000 peak. The top headline moving the market. Investors sent shares flying on bullish comments from the Fed and three dovish new heads at the Fed and the ECB. The S&P 500 has had a remarkable run over the last five years, climbing from 2,000 to 3,000. That's a 50% gain. Jim Cramer noted bubbles are for the bathtub. He doesn't buy the market bubble thesis. He suggested Caterpillar, ticker CAT, and Take-Two Interactive, I like that as well, and MSCI, also looks good. Innovators in their markets, plus Global Payments, ticker GPN, Red Hot Financial Technology Sector stock. It's rallied over, though, 350% in the last five years. Keep that in mind, please. We've had 62 IPOs so far this year, and Jim Cramer thinks he mentioned Trade Web, ticker TW, I like it. And Revolve, ticker RVLV, also looks good technically. Also positive on the prospects for Uber, ticker UBER, and Lyft, L-Y-F-T. I prefer Lyft of the two. U.S. shares, bottom line. Well, the USA Today Greed to Fear Index, even after this week's incredible climb, remains near the equilibrium level, still around 64%, up only 1% despite the big gains. That suggests the herd is still a little bit nervous, which is good news, of course. We haven't quite seen that euphoria yet from a contrarian perspective. So I've been calling for new highs now for many, many, many months, really for over a year, and we just got it. I wouldn't be surprised to see the markets end substantially higher by the end of this year. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio. Portfolio Manager, founder of Corona Capital, single-year performance of over 2,000% as a money manager. Welcome back, John Scursi. Thank you, Chris. It is a pleasure to be back. We understand that one of your homes, some difficulty during Hurricane Irma. Can you tell us a little bit more 
about what happened and, and what's going on. Went down there. I, I had closed up my house for the summer, which I typically do. We are talking about uh, Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, uh, which is maybe about 65 miles east of uh, Puerto Rico. When I learned about what was actually coming into the area, that it was projected to be a Category 5 storm, and um, the uh, path put uh, the British Virgin Islands kind of dead center, I decided um, this wasn't going to be a normal hurricane, which I have experienced um, several normal hurricanes. And I realized, you know, no matter how I had left my home, it wasn't really, there were some vulnerable areas that were not ready for something like that. So I went down there, I got down there um, about a day before the storm hit, and I madly, um, you know, zipped down everything I could think of and um, basically rode out the storm in a um, storage shelter. Um, However, uh, this thing was just You know, nothing short of incredible in the sense that, um, you know, in the aftermath, we learned it was actually a Category 7 hurricane when it hit the British Virgin Islands. The winds were clocked at 230 miles an hour, which had never, a wind speed of that sort had never been measured um, in the history of record keeping in the Northern Hemisphere. And um, I am not exaggerating when I say that the following day, I don't think there was a single plant on the island that still had a leaf attached to it. It was was pretty devastating, and um, it took me three weeks to get off the island. The governor of the um, island pretty much said the right thing. He basically said, Um, on the radio, he said, you know, after this storm, all of us have lost something, and some of us have lost everything. And the one thing I would say, Chris, about that storm, one of the things I'm going to remember always, is that there were people on that island who I know lost everything, but were more than willing to help me out in whatever it is I needed. Unbelievable what people can endure. It br- seems to bring out um, some of the better qualities in, in folks. And, you know, when a big storm comes here, our officials say, well, leave the coastal areas, vacate for a few days or a few weeks. And typically people can return with maybe the exception of Hurricane Katrina in, in an island like Puerto Rico and the British islands, as you refer to, it's a life or death scenario. We're so happy to hear that you had the, the safe storm shelter and that you're rebuilding. Let's move on to potential financial storms. We know that you at Corona Capital, will you outline your core strategies, your investment thesis, and you obviously believe in the soundness of solid money, okay, real assets such as the precious metals. Um, why don't you give us an idea of why you think this is an important investment leverage in a world where Financial insurance is usually the last thing, for some reason, investors are encouraged to consider when constructing an investment portfolio. It's interesting.
interesting because, you know, bringing up that whole storm scenario, you know, there's an interesting analogy, Chris, with, you know, with that whole topic in the sense that we are maybe at the very beginning of a financial storm. What do you do to prepare for it? And I think the first thing is to recognize the nature of the system that we are in. And a lot of people just take a lot of things for granted. They take their financial system for granted. They take their money for granted. Um, And of course, none of these things live in any kind of a static state. Um, Everything is in a dynamic state. And maybe you could say that things change slowly, and they usually normally do. You know, things may take a lifetime to really change um, in any kind of dramatic fashion. And on a day-to-day pace, you barely notice it. But I think it's safe to say that our financial system is one which is debt-based. And it only grows by growing the amount of debt. And there are certain key points in time, uh, in our historic you know, time on the financial scale, uh, one of the key ones being 1971, which is when our money became uh, detached from a real asset, which was gold, which was essentially the collateral behind our money. And what happened after that date was that um, by being unencumbered by any kind of a real asset, um, the path was clear to encumber that money with an unlimited amount of debt. So if you want to, in very simplistic terms, think that we were relatively debt-free in 1971, or virtually debt-free, we grew our level of debt uh, somewhere in the category of infinity over the following, you know, 50 years, let's say. You talk about in the category of infinity, and I just want to emphasize this because I feel that so many pundits, analysts, and economists miss this salient point maybe outline and underscore the importance of the enormity, this money situation. One reason I use that word infinity is to give people an idea of the scale of this number, because people throw out the word billions and trillions almost casually. And I will often, in a a printed article, I will see journalists, mistakenly put billion when they meant trillion. That's how interchangeable those numbers seem to be because they're really um, far from our own daily life mental concept. But but here is something that might um, bring that concept home, which is why I prefer to use the number or the, the concept of infinity, which is the following. If somebody sat at a street corner and his, his or her sole job was to hand out dollar bills, giving out one every second, how long would it be before you gave away 
a trillion dollars. So if you ask a group of people, like a group of school-age children, that story, it's a math, it's a math question, of course. And you assume that, you know, that human being um, doesn't have a normal life. They live forever and they don't do anything. They don't eat or sleep. They just sit there at the corner handing out dollar bills. Well, the correct answer is it would take 30,000 years. You make such a great point. And the way we try to illustrate it, you know, I have two little ones here, a six-year-old, a one-year-old. You know that you have to illustrate things when they're young in very simplistic terms. But, you know, you have to paint with a broad brush and very carefully craft it. And a trillion dollars is one million stacks of one million dollars. That's how much these numbers start to add up. And now... (laughs) <laughs> We're using quadrillion. Describe the notional derivatives value. We're approaching, I think, one to two trillion, uh, quadrillion dollars. So we're talking about a thousand trillion dollars. Another, which I think is also important, which is, Chris, the word simplicity. Obviously, if you're addressing, you know, a child or a young person, you know, you need to boil something down in simplistic terms. But I think. You know, in the investment sphere, something that is sensible or worthy or explainable as an investment theme needs needs to hold water in the most simple of terms. So, in other words, um, you know, any of these broad concepts, they should be understandable to somebody in their most simplest terms. So... My problem, you know, with the debt scenario is I have various problems, but one of them is um, I believe that you should be able to take out a plain piece of paper and give it to someone, give it to an expert and say, you know, on this plain piece of paper, can you show me using, you know, eighth or ninth grade math how we are going to pay this debt off? Simple as that. Yet one person smarter than me, and there's lots of people who are a lot smarter than I am, able to do that. That's a, a very interesting analogy you bring up, that something so seemingly simple might be such an incredible challenge. It does appear that we've sort of reached that uh, road of no return. We've had, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the work of Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff at Boston University, he's a, he believes we're in, in excess of $240 trillion now if you bring in all of the uh, government programs and the future costs associated with funding them. Well, doing back-of-the-envelope math, 10 to 20-fold our annual gross domestic product just to pay it off. So, of course, who could sustain and pay off such a debt? The solution then, it will have to be individual accountability, preparation for the inevitable cyclone, a financial and economic storm ahead. I know that you're a value investor in your core strategies at Corona Capital. Can you give us an idea of the importance of value investing and any other strategies that you feel are debt-related strategies? Map out where we are on the timeline and Bringing it to the present, you know, we've got a number of things going on that I think are really rather exciting because it indicates we are very close to that end game. And this is what I would, you know, 
urge people, um, impress upon people in terms of thinking about. When you have a debt-based system such as ours, uh, what it literally means, Chris, is that every single piece of debt that's out there is someone else's asset. That's a very important concept that I think people have to think about. And it goes a long way into explaining why we are where we are. In other words, we have expanded our global economies by expanding debt. We have shuffled that debt from one pocket to another pocket, but each time the pockets get bulgier and bulgier. So the problem is, where and how can you keep growing this debt when there's no way of even pretending you can ever pay it back? The problem becomes, what does that then mean to the assets which are sitting in everybody's investment portfolio or every bank's balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And um, the implications of that conundrum are enormous in the sense that it not only threatens the entire financial system, it of course threatens the integrity of the very thing we use as our money. Because the only way to solve the debt problem is literally either default on it or deflate it away. Now, the default option does not work because of the problem I stated earlier, which is it is an asset that is embedded in the system. So if you kill that asset in a large enough form, it basically destroys the entire system. If you remember back um, going now almost, it's almost a decade, it's hard to believe, uh, almost a decade ago was when Greece became a real problem. And the Greek people and the Greek government basically threw up their hands and said, we give up, we are broke, and you know we want to default on our debt. They actually had a referendum where the people voted to default on their debt. But of course, their debt masters, who happened to be... Um, the most powerful countries in Europe, which is dominated by Germany, said, no way. And what they literally ended up doing was force-feeding them a new line of credit, which they then took back in the form of the interest arrears that was owed to them. And then, you know, we just went merrily on our way. But it basically proves that Debt is not an option. So what is that other option? The other option is debasing our currency as a way of basically alleviating the debt. And therefore, uh, we as investors have some very interesting choices to make because in this debt boom of you know 50 years that started in 1971, uh, one of the other key things that took place was that more or less on a steady basis, the 
70s being the exception, we had our first and only bout of inflation during the 1970s. But from more or less 1980 on, we went downhill in terms of interest rates. And we went all the way down to zero. And now we are plumbing the new territory of negative interest rates. The reason is pretty clear. When you load yourself up with debt, one way of pretending you can pay that debt is to have interest rates at zero. I mean, you and I, Chris, we could carry a billion dollars of debt personally on our own balance sheets if our interest rate was zero and we got to just roll it over every time it came due, which is, by the way, exactly what all of these countries do. So I'll give you an, I'll make another statement, which is that the United States has never paid any debt back, ever. What I mean is that balance sheet has always grown. So it's like every time one credit card payment is due, you get another credit card and you keep growing your balance. There's a point where it just doesn't work. And I think we are at that point. Those moves that the Fed did about now six months ago, which is a complete 180 from what they said they were going to do, which is we're going to raise rates and we're going to shrink our balance sheet. Well, that came to an early end because there was just a little breeze of a recessionary force that went into the, into the economy. And that was enough to just stop the central banks in their tracks before we could even raise rates barely past 2%. So here we are now um, in the middle of a tr global trade war. Um, here we are now feeling the beginnings of a global recession, and we are already starting to lower rates. But the question is, what is going to happen when that next inevitable recession hits in earnest and threatens to take down some part of somebody's debt structure when you are already at a point where you've, you know, you've got very low rates and the issue of lowering them or even bringing them into negative category brings all sorts of corollary damage. Um, it's almost like giving um, a, a patient with cancer, you know, chemo. Um, there's, you know, you have to remember that chemo is actually a poison. We'll stay in touch via Julian and make sure you can get us updated. I am already looking forward to that and all the very best to you, Chris. And thank you again. All right. Have a good day. You as well. Thank you, Chris. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. GoldSeek.com is excited to introduce an 
off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. Goldseek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. It's just a pleasure to welcome back to the show to goldseek.com radio dr mark Faber, the editor and publisher of the gloom boom and doom report welcome dr Faber. well thank you very much for having me on your program it's always a pleasure i'd like to begin the discussion today if we could with last week's announcement two new fed heads appointed at the federal reserve with a dovish stance plus we hear that christine lagarde will soon take over the helm at the European Central Bank. This would seem to bode well for the precious metals markets as these are uh, folks that favor inflationary policies. I'd like your thoughts, please. Well, I'd like to make following statement. I think that whoever uh, joins the central bank, and usually they have a recommendation by other central bankers, and, or they are sponsored by the government. So whoever is in those positions, whether it's the ECB 
or the Bank of Japan, the Fed, or responsible for fiscal policies is basically an interventionist and uh, not a believer in free markets and uh, expansionist in terms of monetary and fiscal policies. So, yes, what you just said is correct. They are all uh, one way or the other money printers or they believe that they are smarter than the market and that they should intervene in free markets with uh, fiscal and, as I just mentioned, monetary policies. And, by the way, Mr. Trump is the ultimate interventionist who believes that he knows everything <laughs> and can essentially impose tariffs on other people with a desirable outcome, which usually is not the case. Of course, it's a tax, isn't it, on the working and middle classes. It imposes higher costs on goods typically across the board. And we don't always know the reverberations, the impact of government actions down the road on the economy. And there's some talk that the Smoot-Hawley Act and related tariffs had an impact on the Great Depression. Well, it may not have been that the Smoot-Hawley tariffs caused the Depression. But for sure, they aggravated the downturn because global trade had begun to shrink already, but it was then aggravated by the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. And the same global trade, if we measure global trade as a percentage of global GDP, it peaked out in the year 2008, and has been trending down, but now with the Trump tariffs that are very arbitrary, and now with the trade spat between Japan and South Korea, I think the global economy is going to, uh, well, I think it will go, it will tank. In other words, it will contract. You're then predicting a couple of quarters of back-to-back slowing GDP, probably not just domestically, but globally. And this, of course, would um, trigger the recessionary signals. Don't we see signs of this, though, six months in advance in equities market? Do you feel that's reflecting or paralleling your forecast? Well, I think when you print money, you can argue, well, the Fed doesn't print money. In fact, they're reducing the balance sheet. But the fact is that the Europeans are still expanding the balance sheet, the ECB, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England and so forth. So globally, they're still in money printing. And that money that is printed overseas can flow into U.S. assets and boost the prices of U.S. assets. To answer the question is, in the current environment of money printing, that distorts very badly free markets, it may not be easy to spot the recession right away. But if you look at some statistics like car sales or uh, orders for new orders for trucks or global exports or global PMIs, and so forth. All these indicators are down. So I think we are already in many sectors of the economy in a recession. 
And I think it will uh, become worse as the year progresses. It's a mantra we've heard now for a decade from over U.S. equities, which is still the primary focus of most investors here in North America, especially maybe Europe. On the other hand, we've had folks like yourself who um, aren't so confident things can continue. Obviously, some alternatives. We know the safe haven asset. We've discussed that for 14 years on GoldSeek. Well, outline exactly how it will play out is difficult to tell because, you understand, we have to assume that governments are lying and uh, they will maybe hide the recession uh, as you know, in the U.S., and as you kind of pointed out just now, we have a two-tier economy with the asset holders, especially the large asset holders that own uh, large tracts of real estate and equities and so forth. They've done very well, uh, whereas the typical household in the U.S. hasn't done well. But... I just read an article about Switzerland, and this is a, a guy who is a consultant and talks to a lot of companies and a lot of individual uh, entrepreneurs. He said, or wrote, that the common theme of these entrepreneurs, whether these were lawyers or doctors or a- engineers and so forth, the common theme was that Compared to 20 years ago, they all earned less money in real terms. And this, I thought, was very interesting because uh, Switzerland, uh, its economy, has done relatively well, I'm saying relatively well, and that even in Switzerland, it's uh, visible that uh, the typical household is not doing as well as 20 years ago. And if you look at France and at other countries in Europe, there is a reason why the typical household and the typical voter is unhappy, because economically he hasn't done well, period. And so I believe that uh, we are headed into a period where even if they print money, even if they intervene with fiscal measures, and don't make a mistake, uh, say you just mentioned uh, Mrs. Lagarde uh, before, she is the quintessential elitist uh, bureaucrat. She was finance minister. But these charges were then kind of miraculously dropped just as uh, Jeffrey Epstein's charges were miraculously dropped. You know, we live in a system uh, where some people can do certain things and other people can't. And anyway, uh, these people, uh, they will then uh, eventually propose a wealth tax. After, of course, uh, having hidden their money into some instruments such as foundations and some charitable institutions, uh, which will be tax-free, you understand, so that the wealth tax will fall on the kind of medium-sized asset holder, whereas the very rich, the 0.01% 
and the 0.001%, they will not pay these taxes. And uh, this is the outcome uh, that I see happening. And economically, the government can then still show some economic growth in nominal terms, when in real terms, uh, the standards of living of people will continue to deteriorate for the majority. But of course, for people like Mrs. Lagarde, who doesn't pay any tax anyway, uh, because she worked for, uh, before, uh, she worked for the IMF, tax free, and I suppose the ECB, <laughs> they don't pay any tax the employees either. So, we have this elitist standards where the establishment actually is not even elected, but they run the country according to their own will and frequently against the will of the majority of people. You might think of it as Adam Smith's reverse invisible hand, the inflationary burden that we all bear due to profligacy in the fiscal policies as well as monetary. It's ironic because on the one hand, we have this remarkable technological and productivity renaissance all throughout societies around the world. One would think that the standard of living would follow along with those advancements and that progression. However, we also are dealing with the nominal versus real income, and that seems to deteriorate and erode our standard of living. I'm sure you have further commentary, perhaps on the U.S. domestic situation and, of course, our neighbors in China and Europe. Well, i just like to say that in the U.S., the public is, of course, informed by the government uh, and by essentially the establishment about China, and usually they are misinformed. I mean, we just discussed this falling incomes and so forth. To this, i just like to add that actually in the world, if you look at it in the last, say, 30 years, in the Western world, the standards of living haven't gone up, or for the majority of people, for the very rich it has, but for the majority of people it hasn't. But in emerging economies, and especially in China, I can say that uh, the standards of living have gone up for, say, 95% of the people over that period of time. So some people have made uh, relative progress and others have uh, essentially had a relative decline. That is correct and that uh, Mr. Trump has identified. But I don't think he understands uh, that the, what the solution to this problem is. And in order to actually address the, the, or find the solution, one would have to analyze precisely what caused the relative decline of the Western world vis-à-vis, say, countries like India and China. And then we have to analyze uh, by how much have uh, Western governments as a percentage of the economy increased over the last 50 years or so. 
And if you go in an economic system from, say, a hundred years ago, in 1913, uh, none of the European economies had government expenditures of more than, say, 13% as a percent of the economy. And now all European governments have government expenditures of something like 50% as a percent of the economy. Switzerland is somewhat better at 38%. And the U.S. is hovering who knows where you live, you know, because you have to add also your local tax to the whole tax bill. But it's a, uh, for some people, it's close to 50% uh, taxation as a percent of their income. And uh, statistically measured uh, government expenditures, in other words, federal, state, and municipal, is approximately 41% of the economy. And as governments grow, economic growth slows down. Equally, as regulation grows, uh, economic growth slows down. So these are the causes. Trump, he recognized that the regulation is excessive, so he's cut the regulation. That he's done well. The rest, in my opinion, he hasn't done particularly well. And in particular, I think the trade war will have a negative impact on global economic growth. We share your sentiments here at GoldSeek.com Radio. Difficulties and the potential issues resulting from these tariffs, that whenever force is required to maintain the status quo within the economic community, especially in global trade and what, it's risky. Are you concerned at all by the potential, if we have this uh, global slowdown that you're anticipating in the next year or two, how deep of a recession? Are we looking at a great recession circa 2008, 2009, or something different this time? Well, I think that uh, it could be a longer recession because the last recession was very deep, but it didn't last very long. And uh, countries, especially China, were in a position to actually bail out the global economy in the sense that uh, the Western economies collapsed as a result of a financial crisis. Uh, the central banks then came in and bailed out the system. Uh, well, they bailed out certain people. <laughs> they didn't bail out. Uh, the majority of people, but some people were bailed out. But the emerging economies were in a relatively good shape because they didn't have a lot of debt. Nowadays, this is different. Emerging economies are more indebted, and in particular, Chinese economies, highly indebted. So I'm not sure the Chinese economy would be in a position to bail out the world as it was in 2008-2009. And uh, so the recession could be quite uh, lengthy. And in that situation, the Fed and other central banks would do precisely the same they've always done. Uh, they'll print money, you understand? And uh, because uh, there is... Uh, not that much visible inflation. 
there is more inflation if we measure if we define inflation as a increase in consumer prices. There's more than the government statistics would show, but not that much. I mean, it's not like the 70s where prices really went up a lot. But what has really gone up a lot are asset prices. We have the asset inflation. And this money printing that I would expect in the recession, in the forthcoming recession, I'm not sure it will lift asset prices. Who knows? But it may lift some asset prices. I mean, a likely candidate would be that it would lift, uh, say, precious metals and that it would depress the U.S. dollar. I think this is a kind of a conclusion uh, that uh, one could uh, make. But uh, nothing is for sure. Maybe uh, the money printing will lead to more consumer price inflation at some point and uh, rising interest rates. So all these things we don't know for sure. The only thing we know for sure is that the markets are manipulated. We have $12 trillion worth of bonds internationally that have negative interest rates. It's quite an unusual situation. And we had a huge treasury bond rally until just recently. We had also a huge recovery in bitcoins. And we had uh, some recovery in the precious metals prices, but not much relative to other assets. So my recommendation is essentially it will end badly. We don't know exactly how badly it will end. And whether it will end badly with a huge boom in precious metals or whether people will move into cash. Uh, or outside the U.S. dollars into cryptocurrencies. We all don't know that, but uh, I think to assume that uh, stocks and bonds will continue to rally forever is a very dangerous assumption. It's interesting you'd mention that because um, the typical investor today, the financial advice even from the top, usually involves the, the wisdom and the safety, portfolio balancing aspects, stocks and bonds. What we find ourselves in is a world where virtually every paper asset has a surprisingly high correlation to U.S. dollars. In fact, I think you could argue that many of the currency pairs, with maybe the exception of some global stocks, have such a high correlation to the U.S. dollar that puts even some of the institutions and pension funds, which comprise the bulk or a huge portion of the funds out there at risk. Any thoughts on the importance of diversification? As you know, our bread and butter, the precious metals. What other alternatives do you think investors have? Well, I mean, I'm an advocate diversification. So I think that people should own some stocks and some cash and bonds and some uh, real estate and some uh, gold and maybe some cryptocurrencies. Now, the issue is really if there is a widespread asset deflation, in other words, a collapse in asset prices, then everything could go down. 
you understand? So you could have stocks going down, real estate, and some real estate has gone down a lot. High-end properties, uh, they're being marked down significantly because nobody can afford the maintenance of these high-end properties due to extortionist property taxes that are levied by local government. And uh, at the same time, you could have all the bonds going down. It's a possibility. I'm not saying it will happen, but it's a possibility. And you could have art prices collapse and so forth and so on. So the way we had in the depression years a general decline in the price level of consumer prices, we could have in the next uh, serious downturn a collapse of asset prices. <laughs> and then uh, maybe stocks will go down 80% and some stocks may only go down 50%. And uh, some real estate may go down only 20%, and other real estate may go down 60%, and so forth and so on. You don't know, but as an asset holder, it uh, could be that everything will go down. And what doesn't go down will be taken away from you <laughs> through wealth taxes. What you're referring to is, is a seems to be a temporary deflationary period where there's very few hiding places for investors. The amount of global leverage and the enormous amount of paper money. This would seem to be a very socially challenging period you're outlining. Well, I think there could be unrest everywhere. You understand? Because we not only had asset inflation, say, in one uh, geographical area, we had it globally. And uh, as you know, there's a big discussion about wealth inequality. Most people don't understand what caused the wealth inequality. They just point the finger at rich people and say, well, we are not doing well because these rich people have done well. But the cause is really money printing. And this has taken place everywhere in the world. Now, in some... Uh, jurisdiction, the money printing has actually lifted the votes of everybody. In other words, in China, even poor people became more affluent as a result of wage increases in real terms, and the super-rich have become immensely rich, but everybody has advanced, whereas in the Western world, I'd say maybe... 60% of people haven't advanced in the last 30 years. In fact, uh, there are statistics that show that millennials at the age of 35 have less money and earn less in real terms than the boomers had and earned at the age of 35. So the case can be made this is an unusual period in the history of capitalism where a generation is less affluent than the previous generation. A difficult social environment, as you pointed out, and as you know, in the U.S., maybe about half the people, they would like to have more socialism, about the socialism uh, BS. If you group the population 
in men and women. The men are less likely to want socialism and the women want more socialism. 60% of women want more socialism, whereas only about 40% of men want more socialism. Even just a rudimentary review of how these crack-up booms and inflationary busts have played out. I mean, just as our founders here were terrified of inflationary breakdowns because they'd seen what had just occurred in Paris, you know, really for a 100 years, the difficulties that followed. And then, of course, we have a strong man that comes in, you know, Napoleon. Or I guess our ancestors are really um, warning us, beware of what's coming here today. Would you like to tell people more about the gloom, doom, boom report? Well, I have two reports, uh, a printed version, which is called the gloom, boom, and doom report. And then I have a website report. Both reports are published once uh, a month. And uh, information is available under gloomboomdoom.com. I repeat, gloomboomdoom.com. But I think we have to think about these issues. And uh, the government, uh, they will not want to give up their privileges. And so they will keep try to keep the system alive for as long as possible to the detriment of the majority of citizens. Yes, indeed. And you've given us an adequate panacea, I think, today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Faber. Thank you very much for having me on your show. This is Robert Ian with GoldSeek.com Radio. The late George Carlin had many timeless comedy routines. The punchline in one of his best says, It's a big club, and you ain't in it. Referring to how the average person is separated from the hidden hierarchies of power that often rule their lives and the world. I mean, let's be real. If you or I tell a lie, it's called perjury. If someone in the big club tells a lie, it's called lack of candor if it's not ignored altogether. These subtleties have long been known, but seldom articulated. With media and social media, and endless repetition hammering away at competing narratives day in and day out, some ideas actually get through. And then we realize that a severe lack of candor that's lying for you and me, exists as the backdrop of so much of what we are told or led to believe is truth. Think about the polling leading up to the 2016 presidential election. Never in my life have pollsters been so fundamentally wrong and potentially fraudulent in their attempt to shape the news and subsequent outcome of an election, instead of merely reporting on it. It may remain unspoken by most, but I believe that the integrity of polling has a lot to do in order to begin the process of redeeming their integrity in the minds of many. 
A prominent lawyer I knew as a young man used to chuckle and say, I'm with him. He's paying the bills. In other words, the hired gun simply follows the money. Today, that category would unfortunately include many high-profile media personalities and members of Congress as well. One would like to think that justice is blind. However, there's a mantra that permeates all reporting on anything judicial. When a court issues a decision somewhere, the narrative is usually preceded by the statement, a Clinton-appointed judge or a Bush-appointed judge, an Obama or Trump-appointed judge, or if it's someone who's been around for a while, a Reagan-appointed judge, said or ruled on this matter the following. As if, who appointed the judge, and our appraisal of that president's amalgamation of political beliefs will dictate the ruling of that judge on present-day matters. Both destroy confidence and make a mockery of justice. The suggestion by the media that who appointed a certain judge will influence their present-day decisions, and when present-day decisions by certain judges appear to be judicial activism. When either of these occur, confidence continues to erode. Like it or not, the U.S. Constitution says and means whatever nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court say it means at any given point in time. There's been much talk about convening a constitutional convention because so many put forth the narrative that we are in a constitutional crisis. What they fail to realize is that a constitutional convention has, in effect, already been convened. It will be held the first Tuesday of November in 2020. And until next time, this is Robert Ian with ConquerChange.com. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Robert, thanks for another excellent installment. Well, that wraps up this week's GoldSeek.com radio episode. For two new big guests, be sure to check out next week's show. Until we talk to you again, have a great week. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.